Hello, um, I'm Mandy Hager. Thank you so much for coming um, to this session, No Sex, Please, We're Teenagers. Um, if you're easily offended, I'll go like this and you can go la 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 if we say something you don't like. Um, uh, as well as thanking the sponsors, I'd really like to thank Rachel King because she does such a great job actually bringing YA writers into the writers' conversation. So I think that she does a wonderful job. And also just in terms of um, women's voices too. So thank you, Rachel. It's my great honour to introduce our three panellists. Um, Karen Healy and Ted Dore, who are two exceptional New Zealand YA writers, and Frances Young, who's a prominent Christchurch-based parent and sexual therapist. So I think we're going to have a really interesting session. I'm going to try and remember to leave time for questions at the end. Um, however, if you have something really, really burning that you want to say, I think it would be fine just to ask. Um, so I'm just going to ask, first of all, a, a quick setting off question. And then I'm going to give each person just a little bit of time to talk about the thing that's, um, that they feel most passionately about this issue. Because there's a huge range of things that we could talk about, and I don't think we're going to have time to talk about them all. So I thought that might be a nice way of just getting some of it out straight away. But first of all, given that um, our subject is no sex, please, we're teenagers, I just wanted a quick yes or no from each person as to whether they thought it was okay to have sex in YA fiction, and if there's a kind of line which each person would not be happy to cross. Um, and Francis, you can just adapt that and say whatever you want to say about it, really. <laughs> <laughs> but Karen, we'll start with you. Okay, uh, so the question is, should there be sex in young adult fiction? And is, is there a line okay? that I personally would not cross, or do I think yeah. there's a line no one should cross? No, you personally. Me personally. Yeah. Okay, um, so yes, I think there should certainly be sex in young adult fiction, and lots of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm serious, I think promiscuity is something we do not see enough of in young adult fiction, positive promiscuity. Um, but I would like to say that there, I don't think I would write explicit erotica under my own name, because I am a teacher. And while I am not concerned about my students, uh, I am concerned about their parents um, and positive, po possible challenges that might arise as a result. Uh, so, yeah. There are certainly lines of personal taste that I wouldn't cross, things that I don't want to personally include. Um, I'll never write, write a rape scene, um, but, which is not sex. But I think that in terms of should there be sex in young adult fiction, yes. Are there lines that shouldn't be crossed? I haven't seen one yet. Thank you. Ted? Yeah, of course, I'm a bit of an authority on this subject. <laughs> um, I don't actually go out of my way to write about sex in novels. People don't believe me when I say that. It's just that because I write, I try to write very accurate and reflective fiction about young men sex comes up quite frequently. And the idea of not including it, to me, would be shortchanging any reader who comes along and it would ruin my credibility as a writer. Mm. Um, when I um, wrote Thunder Road, I sort of felt a little bit like you. I felt like holding back a bit. I had a word in there, which the school librarian said when I showed her the, my manuscript. She said, you put a word there, Ted, towards the end, and um, if you leave that word in there, your book won't go into any any library in the country, any school library in the country. The word country is quite significant. <laughs> um, and so I, la, 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 la. <laughs> I removed the word. And I always regretted it. Mm. I really did. It seems pathetic and trivial of me, but I regretted it. I felt, sort of felt I compromised there. But the book was very successful. Mm. In fact, it was more successful than Into the River. Um, so, you know, compromises. But when I came to Into the River, especially when I abandoned my publisher, um, I, I felt I'd, I abandoned all restraint as well. And so then I, I really wrote the story which I felt I needed to write. And I answered to the call of my, of my narrative. And um, it's hard to explain what that means. Um, but I had to say to myself all the time, is this what he would do? Is this what he would say? Mm. And if, if it wasn't, it wouldn't go in there. And that's what I ended up with a book like Into the River. Um, which I published, and I never, I never thought it would actually reach all that sort of 
the outrage which it accomplished. Um, you know, and I didn't engineer that outrage. A lot of people think, you know, think, oh yes, it was just shopping for outrage. I wasn't at all actually. I didn't see it coming. I was thrilled when it won the award, and then um, just while I was still sort of running around waving the award over my head, um, Family First people got hold of it, and from then on, it became a little bit jaded, and it took a lot of the gloss off. I felt what the book accomplished, and so it became something else. I'm sort of used to that now. I'm quite inured to it. Um, it's become quite a famous book. Um, but, you know, I still hope it's a good book and it's a book which boys will get something out of. And girls too, of mm, course. Definitely. Mm. Is there something to do with that subject of sex that you wouldn't write about? Is there like... Um, no, not really. Yeah. Not really. I mean, you say you wouldn't write about rape. I think no, right. I've written about rape. I just won't write a rape scene. Right. Yeah, yeah no, well, I, I wrote a rape scene into mm. the river. It's not a particularly dramatic or, or a, an amazing one, mm. but it's definitely sort of fairly dubious consensual aspect going on. Oh, there. she actually physically withdraws consent. <laughs> um, well, and, and it just seemed to me that that was the appropriate thing to write because mm. most of um, most beginning sex is not well thought through or well rehearsed mm. or well introduced um, or well managed. Or discussed. It's, no, or, dis <laughs> or discussed. It's just sort of, um, it's rather unglamorous mm. as one of my... Um, one of my correspondents said it can be animalistic, Ted. Yeah, um, it can be, but um, that's sort of where it is for a lot of people for their first their first outings and that sort of thing. They, they, they they're excited about it. They have dubious amount of knowledge about it, and it evolves in its own way. Mm. Yeah, mm. that whole thing of consent. It's a very interesting little area. Yeah, actually. I'm, I'm going to come back to that. Mm. Um, Francis, what about you? Just in terms of okay to have sex in teen fiction and is oh, there... absolutely i think it's absolutely essential i think it's a, you know it's the, it's the right it's morally right it's ethically right it's um, sensitive to both sexes that we have to have a forum for ethical expression and understandings because we're here today to talk about pornography and you know on the backlash of you know kind of this kind of deluge of what i actually refer to as the trans fats of you know, kind of like the diet on the internet, mm. that we have to have something that addresses and answers. And perhaps my consideration is how to get more of that ethical, erotic information so that people can evolve and think about this without the subjectivity and the objectivity of bodies, that they're in the subjective, feeling their way through it. Because it's about supporting people to become more emotionally intelligent and more emotionally available to themselves so that they can make the call mm. so they can actually decide whether they're on or off and actually come from that inside gut feeling i've just come from an eating disorders conference which is alive and well at the ridges hotel so i've been sitting amongst you know um sort of expert panels talking about eating disorders and you know that body dysmorphia and that mm. kind of you know distancing that we become so um available and for unavailable to actually call from our hearts. And I think that youth adult fiction has a very, very big role. Mm. And not just in the, the, the writing side, but very much a pro, uh, pro the comic scene for um, the comic um, fiction as well, so that we actually see it depicted. Because not everybody's going to drop into 360 pages and be able to consume that. Mm. Great. Yes. Thank you. Um, so now I'd like to give each of you just a few minutes to talk about the kind of thing that most either most riles you or that you feel kind of most strongly about in terms of this whole subject of sex and teen fiction. So I guess just because we're sitting here, Karen, I'm going to go for you again. Okay, thanks. Um, okay, so I guess I'll come back to that idea of positive promiscuity or the idea of uh, positive erotic depictions of sex between teenagers uh, in, in fiction. Um, I think it's, it's really, really important to have celebration of sex, which is such an important part of so many people's lives. Uh, I also think it's actually important to acknowledge that not everybody wants to have sex or is going to have sex or is a sexual being. Um, and that's really important to me as well. But just the... Uh, I keep coming back to this idea of shame and distaste for the body 
and the way that manifests in our culture in so many ways through uh, media representations of what an ideal body is, uh, through porn bodies, through uh, the, the ways that people mediate their self-image to the world and uh, uh, the idea that taking a picture of yourself without makeup can be a radical act, I find horrifying. Um, but just, I want to see more young adult fiction that embraces the idea that you can have sex with anyone who says yes under the law, <laughs> depending where you are. Um, and, and that can be a joyful and wonderful experience and you don't need to be punished for it. And that you, you're not going to get pregnant the first time and that you should talk about contraception and that you, you don't have to worry about... Yeah, I, I would really love for shame to be removed from sex all the, and, and people's lives. And so I would like it to be removed from sex, fictional sex, especially for teenagers. Thank you. Yeah, I've been um, writing occasionally um, for The Guardian, and I've had a bit to do with the editor of the children's fiction section. And I've had a discussion with her about a thing that um, has been known as the Harry Potter effect. Harry Potter has been one of the most powerful influences on all books, not just, not just kids or YA books, but all, all books and all reading in the last 20 years. It's changed the landscape of fiction. Um, what it, well, one of the unhealthy things that it's done, it's driven people towards an idealised fantasy view, and it's driven them away from what I consider social realism, which is my oeuvre. Um, and the reason my book um, stuck in a lot of people's crawls, I think, is that it, it, is, it is a sort of a, a depiction of warts and all um, life of young men, mostly, and their relationships. And um, I feel it's a terribly important counterbalance to Hogwarts and wizards, um, because they need to know about these things. And, you know, I don't know what you were like when you were kids, but actually you, you don't feel like asking your parents. Your, your relationship with your parents is not quite appropriate. So you tend to find it from other places. And those other places are invariably distorted and crazy and all over the place. It's amazing that we don't, we don't end up incredibly screwed up. Well, perhaps, perhaps we do. I don't know. But I think we probably don't. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's to me. I mean, when I, was, when I was growing up, I was desperate to find out about sexuality. Mm. And I found this really exciting book called Dr. No. And um, I bought a copy of Dr. No with my, um, the money from my paper round, book, oh, the first books I ever bought. And I read it, it was very exciting. I don't think it'd be very sexually explicit, but it seemed to me very sexually explicit then. And then I bought the other books as well, and I hid them under my mattress. And my father came home late, late one night and saw my light on and thought something's up here. And the following day went in and found, found these, this little suppository of... Um, of um, Ian Fleming novels under my mattress and tore them all up. Yeah, um, and he's a very rational man. He, he, he read widely and well, far more, far better read than I am. But um, he, he felt that was absolute gutter trash and I shouldn't be reading that. I should be reading Swallows and Amazons and those sorts of books. So, you know, it's an endemic thing and that's really why, where I'm coming from. But I'm not a crusader to educate the world at all. I'm, I'm a writer. I... I was saying to Mandy before, when a novel's taking place, it's like being, I'm guessing here, it's like being impregnated. And um, this little, this tiny little thing, this little worm in your brain starts wriggling around. And many times it dies. And sometimes it gets bigger and you can't ignore it anymore. And you start writing it. And around that little worm comes a novel. And the no as, it, as it gets bigger, it develops its own integrity. And you have to look very closely and listen to it very carefully. And it guides me, anyway, to the writing process. And that's where I came to, to write Into the River. Mm. Okay, thanks, Jim. Francis? Well, I think, importantly, just to say yes, I do think that a lot of people are incredibly screwed up and uncomfortable and feel that shame that you talk about, Karen. And that, you know, the, I mean, certainly in my role in counselling psychology, I see a lot of people who feel very messed up around mm. their sexuality, feel very uncomfortable 
um, with being able to talk about this and, and the whole um, point of um, offering a facility and a service to talk to people where they can get more comfortable is usually they're kind of driven by their extreme sense of absolute despair before they come and pick up the phone and make contact with somebody like me. Um, and often the themes in the room with clients is they haven't been able to talk to parents, they haven't had a supportive cohort of friends that they could really invest and talk and like we all know that we kind of make it up as we go along as we're children you know and we kind of like we're kind of acting out what we think we've seen and that I'm sure everybody would agree I would imagine that you've come here thinking that porn's really really not okay and so on the back of the conversations that perhaps I have with young people in the capacity I've trained in sex education and also health education and came screaming out of school thinking I can't possibly be part of the, the curriculum delivering this and came back into practice and so the idea for me is that um, the conversations around how porn has been dramatically distorted people's sense of who they are and how they've been taught to kind of behave it, it, it really inappropriately and almost like cut off from their bodies because they've kind of had this very strong, since it's come onto the screen, you've got the three A's, you've got affordability, accessibility, and anonymity with porn. So you've got school-age boys in their high school, there's nothing un unusual, strange about, yes, boys will go to porn for masturbation, but you've got 90% of them being exposed to this very extreme, highly violent now, 88% of pornography um, scenes are either being verbally or violently, um, um, demonstrably cruel towards women. And that's where you start looking at the psychopathology behind kind of how we're training people to be turned on. And then you kind of relate back to sort of say forensic psychiatry. Um, one of the leading guys in the field for the last 40 years is a guy called Dietz, and he says, we learn our sexual turn-ons in our mid-adolescence. So if we've got boys and girls, so we've got 90% of boys and 60% of high school girls who've had access to porn, seeing this violence in their faces, in the privacy of their own room with nobody to refer to, they're kind of having this kind of trickle-down effect of feeling turned on but ashamed because they perhaps didn't go to those sex scenes and pornography thinking that they were going to see violence, but that's what they've been exposed to and they felt turned on as well. So how confusing can that be? And then getting hooked into it from an early age of 14, 15, but then when you're 20, you want something different. How do you keep kind of upping the kind of drama of what you're seeing in the pornographic realm mm. in that way? And when you talk and hear what people from the pornography industry are talking about is they're wanting those extremes. They're wanting to shock, they're wanting to draw, they're wanting to prove so you've not just got one-on-one -on -one abuse going on. You've got, you know, whole orgies of gangbangs, you know, sort of four or five men violating, entering a woman, and she's been paid to at least put up or sound like she's enjoying it. So you've got men thinking that they have to perform like this in their bedrooms with their new girlfriends, and girls are just completely kind of overwhelmed, shamed and distressed. So I think there's a really important avenue that... How do you get this revolting beast back under control? Now, luckily, there are public health models that are coming and they're developed, and there's very strong background. But we have to actually get the conversation going and take ownership of this as a community. So it's community-wide in schools. We allow the conversations to take place. So it's great to see everybody here today. So, you know, I'm pretty much behind this. We need to support parents to feel really comfortable about being able to start having those conversations again because our kids aren't having those conversations, but you have to find a way of supporting our kids to navigate on highways that we're not even possibly party to and aware of that they're traveling along by their, by their phones. And it's, it's not even seeking out pornography, is it? I think of music videos mm. and... Um, there's a really fantastic docu two actually documentaries called Dream Worlds, and they, it, it analyzes music videos, and they talk about the pornographic gaze and how a lot of the people who now film music videos used to be um, oops, used to direct porn, 
and how they kind of just use bits of a woman's body. So it's never a full person, it's just a bit of a body. Yeah. Um, we have that problem with young adult covers. Yeah. Book covers. Yeah. Here are some legs. Yeah. <coughs> well, there, were, there, was, there was a little bit on YouTube, this woman who's in porn industry, but the great thing about teen girls nowadays, they come to the set porn ready. Porn ready. Because of those sexualized images and, and music videos. And I think, you know, to, 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 to not completely say that these conversations aren't have, have, have taking place in health classes would be to negate the fact that they, they are, but it depends on the comfortableness of the person who's providing the lessons mm. and where they're at in their own maturity and ability to actually engage with the class. Mm. Mm. I, I'm going to come back to that, I think. Um, I want to... I don't want to spend the whole time talking about the Into the River incident, um, but if you're interested, the classification office um, has now got it as a case study on their website, and it's really fascinating to go through and read all the different kind of um, people pitching their points of view. But I did, I spent about an hour or so reading all this stuff and reading um, Family First material. Um, most of it I found, I have to say, pretty hysterical, to say the least, not in a funny way. Um, but there was one reviewer, and she said that the book offered nothing in the way of hope, inspiration, or how to have a healthy personal relationship. And, I, and Ted and I have talked about this issue of um, hope in teen novels before. And I was thinking about that kind of dubious consent um, in the book and wondering that if, a, if somebody read that and there was no counter-argument to say, actually, that's dubious, then how do they know that that's not the way they behave? Do you know what I mean? And I wondered if you would talk about that, Ted, and then maybe... Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I take your point, Mandy, but when you put something in a, in a novel and then you, you start worrying that the reader might misconstrue this as being an acceptable... Um, mode of operation, and so you feel compelled to put a counter-argument in there, I don't think you're really being a fiction writer anymore. You're being something else. You're being an educator or proselytizer. But, uh, you know, a writer creates something, and um, that thing he, he creates, or in my case, I create, it stands there, and people can take what they like from it. They can say it's disgusting, it's animalistic, they can say it's, it's exciting, they can say it's so boring, um, like, like the, um, the British newspapers tend to sort of say, they have an official thing every year of the most hilarious sexual descriptions, mm -hmm. you know? And um, at first of all, I thought that was really quite amusing, looking at all those things, and I thought, no, what is it with the British? Why are they so sort of self-consciously averse to um, literal descriptions of sex? Mm. Um, Sure, lots of them, lots of them are poorly written, excessive, and purple, but um, that's sort of an important part of people's life, and I sort of feel that they have this sort of don't pick it up aspect to the whole thing. Um, and as I said, this particular book is a primer for the, for beginning sexual relationships, and they're not ones which you think that um, well balanced adults would necessarily adopt, but they're fairly characteristic of what teens and are confronted by and do. And I don't really ever want to get into the business of telling teens what to do because I've, I've been teaching them for too long in schools to know that the minute they sense um, that you have a particular message that you're going to put across. Hey, kids, don't take drugs. You know, um, they, start, they cease to listen to you. Mm. Um, they, they're, they're intelligent enough to make their own conclusions to continue taking drugs or to stop as they see fit. It's not my role to do that. Mm. That's really where I come from, I guess. Great, thank you. Yeah. Karen, do you want to add anything? Oh, I'm didactic. That? I'm completely didactic. I do have messages and I do want to portray them, but uh, I don't think that I... Uh, I, I know that, that my style of writing doesn't suit every reader. Um, there are readers who really appreciate what I do and there are readers who don't, and that's fine. And I don't, I don't think that any other writer is bound to my code of ethics or my particular style either. Yeah. But I, I mean, I do introduce counter-arguments. I think you have to be open that you can go to different, different types of literature and you'll get different things. You'll get some counterbalance arguments and they're going to basically 
set up a fantastic, you know, literature debate, all set up, you know, it's like one-stop shopping, one novel, and then you're going to be left hanging with all sorts of questions and puzzles, and that's okay as well, that's all part of mm. exploring, because that's life, mm. we are left with all sorts of quizzical <laughs> puzzles. Mm. Um, I, think it's, I think it's relevant, and how do you compare writers if we're not different anyway, and we are all different, you know, if everyone looked the same, then it would be a pretty boring play, so... Good, so we've completely put aside family first arguments then. Um, <laughs> except that, interestingly, they brought over a US psychiatrist who then um, <laughs> proceeded to go through all our sex education resources mm -hmm. and um, to quote who said they were seriously flawed mm -hmm. and that critical, critical life and death info was distorted or ignored. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you would respond to that, and then I'm really interested to hear from our teachers as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. What's curious about that is our teachers, our pedagogists, their retort was that they felt that that particular argument was also seriously recidivist and <laughs> flawed <laughs> because they were missing the point. And um, I mean, I've, I actually have deep respect for all spiritual values. I'm, I'm quite interested in people's religious beliefs. But when you start kind of in a reductionist way, getting that dogma together to oppress and re-minoritize minorities and kind of just absolutely put them into a bucket and say, you know, how you want to be can't possibly be mm. acceptable, then there's something surely wrong, really, but, you know... You can well, how you are is not acceptable, well, not even what, what you want to be. Well, yeah. How you are, how you want to be, I mean, you know... I've I work in sexuality and I get people who say, no, I'm choosing to be gay. And other people go, no, I was born mm. gay. So, you know, mm. kind of, I think we're all on a continuum. I like that fluidity because, you know, don't knock it till you've tried it sort of thing. <laughs> I just want to push you a bit further. So yeah. do you, how do you feel about the resources that we do have in schools? Well, I've, I've trained in health, as I said, and I think that you've got to see it as a whole community approach, and that means school community as well. So I think the resources that we know, um, the people who are writing policy and actually developing the curriculum, they know that there's some flaws. They know that it's hard to keep up with what the internet's providing. They know that they're always trying to sort of head off at the past, just like how you know body image and eating disorder issues and disordered eating has become snowball. It's the kind of everybody's got some sort of relationship that's uh, uncomfortable about the way that they look. That's being in the white Western world, and it's you know kind of you know right across um, you know into all cultures um, you know across the globe, apart from really far outreach places where they don't have internet and they don't have access to television and things. So I think my point is that. Um, in education, within the school environment, you have to have a whole consensus behind you. You have to have it from top down, bottom up. You have to include what the students are actually interested in, because no point, like Ted was saying, is telling them what you think they need to know. You've got to actually find out what, what, what they do need to yeah. know. Yeah. So one of my questions in a therapy session is, what are you looking at on the net? You know, kind of, what are you interested in? What's your value on this? finding out actually what the young person's interested in. You've got to get the buy-in from the parents. You've also got to get the buy-in from the whole school, a bit like the new policies around anti-bullying. You've got to have the whole school on board for anti-bullying for it to work. Otherwise, you won't get people topping each other in and sort of calling it. You've got to have the same thing with the porn um, situation, really, definitely. Yeah. So do you think that overall we're getting the balance kind of right? I think we're going to a place where... Um, They've looked at it through the public health. It's a public health crisis. Um, I mean, certainly, um, you know, when you've got young people who actually cannot have any type of sexual experience other than kind of viewing pornography, so they're going to be having problems long-term in relationships, then you have to say it's a public health crisis. It's, you know, tra it's a travesty in relationships. Um, and so the new legislation and the new stuff that's being brought in has been developed in Australia because basically New Zealand's, we're cash poor at the moment, we're not putting money into public health stuff like this, so we're buying the resources in, and I'm pretty impressed actually, if you go to In the Picture, if you go to um, there's two or three things that they're drawing in that, that they're going to be selling into the schools, but actually, I went online, you could actually see the whole thing you might be able to probably get packages and stuff that's printed up that, you know, looks pretty official.
which would be good to have in your class. But you can actually go online and have a look at that. If you have a look at in the picture, that's the resource that they're going to be putting in through the public health service, and they're wanting schools to buy into that. Good. And it, it is very, very good. It just says what it is, and that's what we're talking about. We yeah. need to say what it is. Good. So I'd like you two to respond in terms of how you feel about how it's being handled from a teacher's point of view. Oh, well, I'm not in the health department, um, but as an English teacher, one of the things that I think is absolutely important is um, teaching research skills and the ability to discern bias. And I think that that applies across the board and uh, it's particularly useful when it comes to kids who, who don't want to talk to parents, who don't want to talk to their peers, who want to find information. If I have given them the skills to find information on, I don't know, should marijuana be legalised in New Zealand, but I have also given them the skills that they can apply to, if I want to have sex, how can I do that and be safe? And as, as an English teacher, that's one of the things that I find absolutely vital. Mm. Um, the other thing that I find really helpful, and I sort of glance at this, is when I teach film, I go on and on about how uh, film directors are incredibly manipulative. They're going to the back of your brain, they are applying sound, they are applying image, and so we teach those close viewing skills which I'm not saying that they are able to apply those to porn, but I'm hoping that something trickles in eventually. Obviously, I cannot dissect uh, a sex scene um, without being fired, but <laughs> I, I'd really like to be able to, but yeah, no. Uh, so those are, those are the things that I think I can do mm. in, in my position. Yeah, thank you. Ted? I'm too, too long out of the classroom to actually add anything particularly useful in that discussion. I mean, when I was, my last major teaching job was at a boys' school. And um, when I first went to that school from a co-ed, I was appalled by the boys' attitudes towards women. Mm. When I took them out, out on a softball trip, for instance, and sort of barracking out the windows of the, of the minibus and stuff, it was hideous. And um, I remember at an earlier school, I had a similar sort of thing too. I'd forgotten what boys' schools were like. There was sort of a... Um, a a bonding thing coming in around the humiliation of women. Mm. Um, it was sort of it was an inclusion device. Um, and I remember when I was at this in my first school, I won't mention the name of it now, but it was a large, famous boys' school in the centre of Auckland, very near the Martin. Yeah, good. <laughs> I was teaching there, and th these boys were going on and on about rape, and. Um, this is a long time ago, you know, and I was, sort of, I was getting more and more pissed off about this. And so they said, oh, well, you can, you know, the time came for, for you to get new textbooks. So I, I just read um, Deliverance. So, oh, I'll get a class to Deliverance. <laughs> and um, so, cause I thought, well, now they can understand what's like being on the receiving end of a rape instead of just reading about the doing end. And um, so I was quite excited about this, but then, when I went to teach, it wasn't there. And when it wasn't there because the, the head of English had taken it to the headmaster and said, this book's appalling, and they put the whole lot in the incinerator, all 40 copies. Oh. Um, so that was, that was how difficult intervention was then. I'm, I'm sure it's better now, but, um, you know, yeah. Mm, interesting, thank you. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask Karen, and then I think probably, Ted, you can talk about this too, in terms of um, what we will allow in New Zealand in terms of publishing and YA and swearing, what's, what's written about, and you're published in the States, and I wondered if you could talk about the differences that you've come across between New Zealand publishing and US publishing. Uh, well, I mean, I've, I've been published by one publishing house in New Zealand and one publishing house in the States, so uh, I, I am speaking to a particular culture in each of those. But, uh, for example, in my fourth book, While We Run, there is a not an explicit scene, but a, a saucy scene um, where two teenagers are um, making out, Frenching, basically, and unzipping each other on a table. And uh, my Australian editor wrote back, and she's like, I just got to the table scene, and it's so great. Oh, it's amazing. The kids are going to love it. And my American... Uh, my American editors didn't write back to me right away, but in the notes of my manuscript, they were like, do, do you need to use the word unzip? <laughs> and I'm like, yes. <laughs> um, th that was the same book. They were like, you haven't sworn anywhere else in this book, but you've got this one word here. Can you take, take that out for, for me? And I'm like, okay, sure. Uh, 
because this will keep it out of book fairs. I'm like, okay. I want to be in book fairs. I want to sell books. So there are things that uh, I will compromise on, and I admire you a great deal for abandoning your publisher. Um, but, uh, yeah. The other sort of interesting example, I think, is Guardian of the Dead, which is by far and away my most violent book. It has, has the most scenes of uh, traumatic violence. Um, when I first wrote it, the protagonist was in her first year of university and she had a sexual relationship and she had lots of sex and, and it was good. And when I changed it to a young adult novel, I had to drop the age and that, that was like the seventh rewrite of this damn book. Um, and I was like, oh, should I take out some of the violence too? And they're like, no, we, we like that. That's okay. So the scene with uh, being naked in a boy's bed and then rolling over the, the edge with her butt in the air and finding another girl's sock under his bed, that wasn't okay. But a scene where a woman has smashed in a guy's head and eats some of his brains, that's okay. And that book is officially 12 and up in the US yeah. and 14 up here because of the violence. So I thought that was interesting. I don't know mm. if it's a cultural thing. I don't know what it is, but, but that was the, the difference that stood out to me there. And there are, there are many American uh, examples of great, uh, great sex in YA. Uh, My Sister Rosa by Justine Lavalestier has just been, it's come out here, you can read it, I highly recommend it. Um, and that's also come out in the States and that's also got very positive, uh, interesting, somewhat fraught uh, sex scenes. But yeah, I, I did notice that difference. Just, just one other question on that. So when you're writing, mm -hmm. is that at the back of your mind, that you need to kind of swerve away from that if you want it to be published there? I, don't, I mean, I can publish it anyway. I can mm. always publish. Um, I don't know. I guess it is. It always is. I'm always aware of the market uh, because I, I am a commercial writer. Uh, yeah. I think it is an influence. So take out the sex and put some more violence in there. No, I don't want to put in more violence. <laughs> Necessary violence. Yeah. Exciting violence. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, no. I think it does influence the, the, the sex availability. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Ted? I was very fortunate when I started writing novels because I was publishing through um, Longacre. Mm. Longacre were a niche YA publisher based in Dunedin. And children's books too, and other, other books as well. And they didn't really rein me in in any way at all. They were very enthusiastic and, um, and supportive. Gave me a brilliant editor, great cover, and the book did very well. And so I didn't feel at all constrained. Um, years later, when I decided that I wanted to go and write a sort of a, um, a sequel to it, um, Longacre had been sort of eaten up by Random House. And so I had to get to know a different sort of regime. And, um, they weren't, so keen, they weren't so keen on what I was doing, and they kept sending me back. And um, some, of the, some, some of the things they sent me back about, they were nothing to do with sex or violence. They had to do with the length of the book and the marketability of the book. The book at that stage was 800 pages, and they felt it was too long. I thought it was about the right length. Um, but, you know, I sent back, and, and eventually it, it, I, um, I abandoned them and, did the, and, and, and had, had it all done at my own expense. I had it edited and proofed and everything at my own expense. And so I, I didn't represent it to Random House at that stage. I went ahead and, and self-published, and I was the publisher, and I had, gave myself a good stern talk to it from time to time. And, and, you know, but the ultimately book, approved. I was ultimately <laughs> approved, yeah. Now the book's gone to America. I've heard nothing. There's, there's been nothing. I mean, I know that's all very jurisdictional in America, that what's, what's acceptable in one part of the States is, um, is, is not another, but no one's said anything bad. It's been reviewed very well. Um, they didn't seem to have a problem with it, which is quite surprising, really. Yeah. Thank you. And Francis, have you noticed any difference in the way that we as a country approach these kind of issues compared to other countries? Well, I'd like to think that we, you know, I mean, kind of first to um, kind of, um, you know, look at equal rights and we're kind of, you know, forward thinking, but there just seems to be a little bit of a uh, stymie going on, you know, in the last in the last maybe 20 or 30 years, I think we've kind of taken a leap back since the 70s, it's just kind of getting going and then it kind of 
got to be frank, but I think there's an irony as well, is like, you know, particularly with the US market, you know, they're kind of like, no sex, please, we're, you know, we're American, and yet they've got this massive appetite for um, violence, and you know, the, the correlation of violence and, and sex together, basically, they're just increasing, um, you know, more and more teaching for people to become sexually aggressive, and also teaching how to rape. And this is on the increase. And, you know, when they actually talk to the porn industry and ask them, can you put a pause between a sexual erotic experience that somebody's visually getting turned on with this woman, can you at least wait a minute before you see her off and kill her? And mm. they didn't. They wouldn't. They didn't listen to that. They don't seem to. They seem to just want to kind of power on. Um, well, that's what we're consuming, you know, we're part of this consumer age, like I say, it's just like the trans fats of the, the World Wide Web, really. It's not good for our health, it's not good for us physically, it's not good for our relationships. And I'm not sure that we're that great at talking about relationships, but I think there's always room for improvement. Okay, thank you. Um, and, and this is just a more general one. Um, I was thinking about the whole roast busters thing, mm -hmm. and... Um, and how at the time of that discussion it seemed like this kind of misogynistic thing rose up to greet that. And um, more recently, Deborah Russell, who lectures at Massey, coming out and saying that New Zealand has a rape culture and that we have an environment that tolerates and at times supports rape and that young men in New Zealand have a sense of entitlement. And if you look at you know the news over the last year or two, we've got all blacks fondling, but then shaming strippers. Mm. We've got you know a ponytailing pulling PM. And yeah. um, so, what is the message to our young men? And in terms of writing, I don't know what that means. I, I'd like your thoughts on it. Where are we going when we've got this kind of seething underbelly of kind of sense of entitlement and rape culture going on. What do we do about this? Not sure it's under. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly sure it's surface level. Uh, well, to pick up a newspaper, uh, stripper raped and murdered, not mother of two, yeah. or uh, not woman trying to do her job, which is entirely legal, mm. you know. Mm. Our, oh, I had a great discussion a couple of weeks ago. I'm mean, great. Um, I was talking to somebody and like, talking about rape culture, and I went, oh, you know, it's not, it's not really a rape culture. I've never been raped. I, I don't know anyone who's been raped. I'm like, no, well, that's not true. And also, uh, rape culture isn't, have you personally been raped? Have you personally encountered rape? The culture is, uh, if someone talks about rape, and you're like, oh, well, you know, if you go out and you're drunk, mm. nah. you know, that's the stuff we don't combat as well as I think we should. Um, in, in any form of cultural expression. They have different categories for it. They have real rape. They have oh, yeah, real rape. rape. Yeah. yeah, which happens with a stranger. Yeah. Yes. That's right. And yeah. If you know somebody, then there's kind of, you know, kind of like a subliminal thing there that actually you are coercive and that. And if you've ever had sex with them before. Yeah. yeah. And even if you change your mind at the last moment then you're, you know, that's not okay because you're withdrawing your favour and you've you're on a promise, you've gone back for coffee. Mm. It's just unacceptable. You're Derek. allowed to change your mind at any moment. That's why I say, in the picture, go and have a look at our website. We'll give you all the lovely answers that you need to be prepped up. And this is for guys as well. Mm. You might find yourself, you know, tiddly, and then, you know, you get back somewhere a little bit later on, you actually decide that, no, actually, I've changed my mind. I'd mm. rather go home. This isn't going so well. I can't stand the girl's music. You know, yeah. I don't like the guy's books. Her comic fiction is. isn't good enough. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> this isn't kind of how I expected it to be. I'm off. And it gives you all sorts of really quick and easy things that you can say. And I mean, I work, I work also with um, sex workers. And, you know, they're, they're trained up with, you know, skill set. You leave your clothes and your handbag by the door because if it gets nasty, if you can't negotiate your way out of this, then you need to have your own exit. I think we have to tool kids up. How can we tool kids up without, without actually opening the forum for conversation? Mm. Bring it on. Mm. Kid, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, no, it's interesting you brought up roast busters. I was thinking about that the other day because um, when I, was had, I had a meeting at the Auckland Girls um, talking about novels and censorship and the censor was their chief censor, Dr Jack. And um, 
he mentioned roast busters as being sort of a, um, a symptom, a societal symptom of, the, of moral decay and, and the sort of thing which censorship is aimed at um, backing up. To me, the roast buster thing is largely a... Uh, the, the only th new thing about it is that it involves social media. Mm. To me, there's always been groups of young men rushing around trying to have, have as, as much sex as they possibly can with, with people anonymously or whatever and then brag about it later on. Mm -hmm. There's nothing new about that at all. Mm -hmm. yep. But um, going on social media, of course, just puts it on steroids. It's, yeah. it's so much more steroids. damaging um, and shaming. And, um, and it shocked everybody. And a, and a lot of the things, a lot of the pornography, of course, mm -hmm. is, is to do with the new technology. Yeah. While it was going buying, buying dirty books, it was sort of, as you say, quite containable, yep. especially while yeah, it was spend money. Yeah, and, and especially when it was text-based. Yes. Um, but you know, when when, when an eight-year-old can pick up an iPad and find and find pornography in fifteen seconds, yes, it's a different scenario altogether. And I think the roastbusters is just yeah. really what's been going on for yeah. a long time. How is the census office going to stop roastbusters? What were they? Well, well no, when when someone case? asked the sense the censor, you know, at what. How do you, you know, at what point do you just do you make the decision that this this book is unhealthy for society, and it's and, and if this book goes through, it's going to allow society to to go in a bad direction? And he used the roastbusters as an as an example of where society ends up when um, the, the restraints aren't in place. Mm, that's really interesting because I mean, when into the river had to be taken out of our school library. Oh no! Mm. Oh, you put it back again. Oh yes, of course. Okay. Mine carp is still there. Oh, well, that's it was okay. there the whole time. Good company. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I think we can. Yeah. yeah. Well, something I also wanted to to talk about is we've got so many rapists who don't know that they're rapists, mm. who are walking around and would never apply that word to themselves mm. because that's that's the bad mm. thing, and they're not bad people. They're no, good people. No, that's true. Mm. Um, they, you know, in their heads, mm. so they wouldn't they wouldn't do that. I mean, they might have had too much to drink. And, and, you know, when she said no the first time, they might have just kept going because she probably can't mm. change her mind. Mm. And I'm saying she deliberately. Mm. Um, but we do have rapists of all genders walking around who don't know that they're rapists. And because we don't talk about it well, Unless they can get away with it, they, you know, would, you know, college students were asked if you thought you could get mm. away with rape after being shown pornography. Would you rape? Oh, absolutely. Of course, I could get away with it. You know, mm. I could, you know, do anything I want. That would be great. Thanks. Mm. Definitely. So again, in a way, again, it comes back to that discussion about consent, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> understanding that. Um, I realise that we're fast running out of time. Oh. I've got all these questions I'd still really mm. like to ask, but um, <laughs> but I'm, I want to open it up because I think I'm sure you've all got interesting questions you want to ask too. But I want to first of all go to. Um, Marianne Scott, who is in the audience, who's a fantastic YA writer as well, who's just had a book out called Rooster that looks at teen pregnancy from a boy's point of view. And I'd really love it if you would just tell us um, why you wrote it, kind of the challenges and the responses to it. So, yeah. 
And what about in terms of the way it's being received? Um, it's very early days. I don't came out at the end of May, and um, hopefully, yeah, on the whole, really good. The School Life Association has really taken it under their umbrella and said that this is a book they want in the schools for boys. Mm, I, I recommend it. It's a fantastic book. Um, thank you. So I'd like to open it up to questions. Um, yeah, we've got, we've got, I think, about 10 minutes. Um, I'd particularly love to hear from any of the young people we've got here, if you've got some questions you'd like to ask. But please just um, raise your hand, and I don't think we'll probably need a microphone. I think we should be able to hear you. I've got plenty of questions if you don't have any, but I'm sure that some of you are thinking about things. Is there anything? Thanks, Oh, thank you. I think my favourite thing about both fantasy and science fiction is that they literalise metaphor. So um, I, I, I read a lot of social realism and I really enjoy it, but that's, that's not the genre I write in. Um, because to me, a fraught relationship between two people would be even more interesting if one of them can set people on fire with their mind. Um, <laughs> and, the, and the other one is uh, closed off and builds walls around himself. You know, I, I find that sort of literalisation of... Um, young adult liminality and change and, and growth really, really interesting, which is uh, one of the reasons I will always defend not the sexual politics, but the existence of Twilight. Um, <laughs> because it's, it's such, it, it is that literalisation of desire. Weird. Does it, <laughs> does it free you up in a way too? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it, I, I like that a lot. Mm. Um, so... What I try to have, though, and this is part of the fact that I am a didactic writer, is that I strive for emotional realism. Uh, even in a world where cryonics is possible, I, I want my, my team lovers to be emotionally realistic, to act the way they would. Oh, my favourite thing is when I get reviews that are like, why would they fall in love in the middle of, of uh, running away from an oppressive regime? And I'm like, that's... That's what happens, stress and proximity. That's, that's, that's how, if you've ever been in a university drama club, that's, <laughs> that's how it goes, yeah. Um, so I, I think there is what Tita's saying about the sort of cosy fantasy, that's sort of frightening. So I think that if you take out the parts of teenagerdom that still exist emotionally, even in, you know, she just leaped ahead 17 years and now they had kids, but they've never had sex. They just... Yeah. Mm. Mysterious. <laughs> Mysterious. <laughs> Does that answer? Yes, yep. Thank you. Um, could I ask um, if the panel I've ever had concerns from younger readers or younger people about the way they write or teach about sex, or have all the complaints really come from adults of the gender? I, I've had lots of teen reviewers who are like, I liked this book until there was swearing. Or um, I liked this book until they started making out and didn't talk about contraception. So I think that the teenagers can, you know, they, they form their own judgments and that's one of the judgments that, that some of them form. Yeah. You know, I've talked to heaps of schools, big, big groups and small groups of kids and no kids ever, ever complained about that. All the swearing, sometimes they complained about the use of Maori language in the books and yeah. said they can't understand it, but that's okay. The, one, the American one's got a glossary in the bottom. <laughs> um, that, it's an, interesting. I mean, I know it's an adult, it's an adult issue, not, a, not a as far as I'm concerned, not a teenage issue. I, I've never had a kid complain about swearing in my books. Mm. And sometimes they'll ask me, you know, why do you do it? And I just say, I love swearing. I think swearing is a great leveller, particularly in my practice room. And, you know, kids will just use the F word like, oh God, you must swear, but, but please feel free. I want you to feel like you can be yourself. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it shows me um, more, more shape to your character if you just, you know, relax. But it, it's interesting, um, you know, I'm a parent of a 16 year old as well, and, um, you know, kind of looking at the friends, I was talking with a psychiatrist today, just getting on that kind of business between what teenagers will talk to adults about and I guess the more intimate the relationship is 
i.e. around parents and family, I think the more strained it can become. And sometimes it's actually a bit weird. Sometimes I'll see teenagers with their parents, and if there's like, the parents know far too much about this teenager, I, I feel a bit uncomfortable. I think, gosh, how kind of restraining that could be, you know, like, you kind of like, you're kind of not able to have your own formed opinions because of this lens constantly kind of, you know, kind of coming, pulling backwards and forwards. So, you know, I was very careful to talk to, you know, my daughter about, you know, well, you know, how do you protect yourself around kind of, you know, like this kind of flood of sexual imagery online? And um, I said, I'd like to be able to talk to you without it feeling really uncomfortable and embarrassing because that just makes me just also want to wriggle away and not have this conversation with you. It's hard for me too. Because, you know, that idea of repelling one another, you know, this conversation between teenagers. And, so I think that, you know, teachers have a great role. We managed to have this little conversation. I, I always say to my daughter, it's just going to take a, two or three minutes, maybe three at the most, and I promise you that. And I, I just, so I just, I'm, I've learned to be quite succinct and careful. And so the answer back was, um, well, a lot, of the, a, lot, a lot of the platforms I'm seeing, and she was naive in a way, in the nicest sort of way, they, they filter out this stuff. And then she showed me something that came through on Instagram, Kim Kardashian shaking her ass with, you know, sort of very tight skimpy bikini. Apparently there's a pornography film that's come out from the Kardashians. I'm, you know, so backward I wouldn't know about that. But, um, you know, I was thinking of the much more lewd end of stuff that with the really graphic violent sex that we've been talking about. And, um, and I said, well, you know, if something comes up and you want to talk about it, you know, I know that you're not coming to me to talk about it. Well, you know, what do you do with this? And she goes, I just flick it out. I flick it out to everybody, you know, on my Instagram or on my messenger. And we, we just talk about it amongst ourselves. So, you know, the young people, you know, they clearly want to have conversations about this stuff. So I think, you know, school and, you know, safe mentorship, people, because you've got to remember that we're also sexual, we've got sexual agency ourselves. Mm. We get turned on. Go on. Oh, sorry. I, just, yeah. I was just reminded of something, which is that Harry Potter, yes, sanitized, no sex in it. But yeah. teenagers wrote so much fanfic. Yeah. That was all about it was all about the sex and putting it back in and and exploring all of that stuff. And yeah. I mean, the, the agency involved in that was just absolutely incredible. So you yeah. know, you've just got to be really ethical in your own head. And if you, it's like me and my practice. If I, if I feel like something's on a wobble, then I talk to supervisors about it, and I get mentorship around it, and I really test the boundaries all the time. And that's what we're about. We're testing our boundaries. It doesn't matter what age we are in. So, you know, you kind of just have to kind of front up and start having conversations. That's probably the most useful thing that came out of the family first conversations from the psychiatrist, where she said, you have to be brave and start having these conversations. Mm. So it wasn't all damnation, I think, from what she had to offer. But, you know, she was being selective. I think you have to be selective. And I think that's really what we're saying. Intuitively learn that your guts will tell you what you're comfortable with. Mm. And it's the young people and the younger, the more traumatized who are exposed to this sex, you know, imagery, often the young people, kids, they might not have even really had a look at their own genitalia, particularly, you know, maybe a young girl or whatever, and just kind of been exposed to this kind of free sort of stuff. Mm. Would you like to know the Kim Kardashian thing that happened? So she took a sex tape with her boyfriend. That's right. And then she dumped him. Yeah. And then he put it Fab. on the net as revenge. Fab. Yeah. So. Uh, Which is exactly what teenagers are confronted with, with kind of being shamed and named, you know, kind of consistently with their social media as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm. I, I've watched lots of porno uh, on tapes. Mm. Relationships. So, I mean, 
you're, you're talking about extreme um, porno, when in fact a lot of people just use porno because it adds a bit of spice to their life and, and so on. So uh, can you clarify um, what you think about the porno tapes and that you get from the video shop? Are you getting them literally on tapes like VHS? Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of the stuff that's so on the net is, has been normalised as hardcore. Well, yeah. yeah, the DVDs, the DVDs, the pornos. Do they have titles like 15 person gangbang? No, 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 no. If, if, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I could, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm, I'm <laughs> if you go to a video shop, mm. the, 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 the online the stuff is much, much more corrupt. They yeah. I think what's being talked about here is the stuff that isn't kind of controlled and measured that pe that is available online. That pe yeah. that, the that's stuff that's the actually hard to make a living yeah. from because it is just so free. People can just post it online or whatever. So yeah. much available that you know. But I'm going to sit here and stand, you know, firm that I'm really anti-porn. I'm really, really uncomfortable with the pornography scene. Erotic art, different. Pornography designed to control and oversee some form. You never see generally women actually being in a powerful position in porn. They're usually they're on the receiving end of what men see objects of their desire in that woman and, 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 and they do anything. And so girls grow up with this idea that men can actually do anything um, to them as girls, that they don't have any agency and any say. So I'm, I'll take a line, and, and you know, it's not a nice subject. I don't like it. And, and on that line, I'm afraid we have to stop. So thank you. I'm sure we could have talked for hours more. It's been absolutely fascinating. Please, can you thank our speakers? <laughs> and um, Ted and Karen will be signing books over in the book.